Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. A few episodes back, I had a conversation with Eric Pierre, a second-generation CPA. Eric is Black and has been vocal about the lack of minority representation in the profession. He and I have kept up a dialogue on Twitter, and recently he raised the issue of financial support from minority businesses versus ownership of minority businesses. The latter is not typically highlighted. He and I had discussed on the podcast a lot of what needs to happen to change the narrative in the spaces is to see examples of Black and Brown-owned success stories. I thought about that conversation a lot, and I knew I wanted to move it forward, and I knew exactly who I wanted to talk to, one of the most successful entrepreneurs that I knew, Will Reynolds. Will started Seer Interactive in 2002 as a one-man operation out of his living room. Today, Seer is home to over 150 employees across Philadelphia and San Diego. Will is Sears' founder and director of strategy. He has worked across every vertical, including pharmaceuticals and hospital systems, to e-commerce and SAS. With over 15 years experience doing and talking about search, he loves to speak at conferences about the future of search. And when I asked Will to come on to the show, here's what I specifically asked him to do. Talk about how he grew Sears and how that happened in the context of race, if at all. And within that conversation, I told him that I wanted to, of course, talk about money, which is the focus of my show. So as a starting point, Will shot over a piece that he wrote that I'm going to link to in the show notes. But to give you some context, it's titled, Was I Overlooked for Jobs Because I Am Black? How Would I Know? And it has a lot to do with something that I love and I think my audience loves, which is numbers. So Will, first of all, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. And, you know, I've known you for a bit and I know a little bit about your story, but can you kind of tell everybody else how you got started and kind of the Reader's Digest version of how you got from, you know, working out of your living room to having C or B the success that it is today? Sure. So the way I started working in my living room is I was working at a Fortune 500. I was not really happy there. I was maybe like 23, 24. And I decided I was going to just start knocking on doors of companies that I thought was doing cool stuff. And I did that for about 18 months and never got a job. And uh, in that time, I started volunteering at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And uh, I really enjoyed that time. So I asked my boss at the time at this big Fortune 500 company, I said, hey, can I work through my lunch on Wednesdays so I can leave an hour earlier and get to my volunteer assignment on time? Mm -hmm. And my boss, Susan, was like, no, I don't think we can do that. And, And when she said that I had been looking for a new job at that point for 18 months unsuccessfully... So then that was the catalyst for me to start the company. Cool. And so, and again, it's funny because we talk a lot about entrepreneurship and this, there's this idea that you, you just kind of make it happen, right? Like it goes from you're in your living room one day and the next day, everything's cool. So how did that transition happen? Because when you decide to start your own business, which is a scary thing in and of itself, how do you then hire your first employee, rent your first space? Like what kinds of thought processes go into making those decisions? For me, it was easy. I've always been a team sports kind of guy. You know, I like to have somebody to high five at the end of the day or somebody to pick you up at the end of the day when you have a tough one. 
So I knew from the beginning, the idea of being a solo consultant and just doing that wasn't going to be fulfilling. So I knew from the beginning, I wanted to build a team. However, I thought that I would limit the company's growth to only 10 people. Okay. Um, I never, I, you know, I went to school to be a teacher, so I never asked for this. You know, it's funny. People are like, oh my God, you run a successful business and it's, you know, almost 200 people now. We think we'll end the year at about 230. And like, oh, you know, people talk about that. I'm like, I didn't even want this. Like mm-hmm. I would have built everything that Sear became in someone else's business if they just had to open the door and hired me back when I was knocking on those doors. And it wasn't overly scary for me because I always figured what's the worst that could happen? I could always go get a job. Right. So hiring those first few people, I've always been kind of fiscally prudent. So it wasn't like I was like, oh my God, I'm stretching myself so thin. Um, but I do remember the days of kind of thinking about your first employees as people who make you go broke again. Okay. So, you know, you spend a lot of time trying to overcome and, and sell stuff and get clients. And then you're finally going back from like eating bowls of cereal every night to maybe you can order sushi twice a week. Mm-hmm. And that hire that you make, those first two or three hires, they make you go back to eating cereal again, right? So you really are like, man, I hope this is worth it because I'm going back in the, you know, back to the poorhouse, hoping that it becomes something better than it would have been if I had to stay on my own. Sure. And when you were knocking on those doors and people weren't answering when you were looking for a job, what made you, and I think this may be an entrepreneurial thing, but what made you think it would be different when you were knocking on doors for people to hire you as a consultant? It's a good question. <laughs> Thanks. You know what? I think that people just didn't have vision. At that time in Philly, Philly was a pharma, pharma, pharma town. Mm-hmm. And my destiny was always up to somebody else. You know, and, and I would say to people, hey, you know, I know how to reverse engineer the algorithm for AltaVista or Hotbot or Lycos. And they were like, yeah, but what's your pharma experience? And I'm like, well, I don't have any, but the search engine doesn't change itself based on what industry you're in. The algorithm is the same. And that pitch never worked. I mean, I couldn't even get an interview. So the interesting thing is, at least for me, by running my own shop, I could do something every day to try to get a client. Whereas knocking on those doors time and time again, my destiny was always up in somebody else's hands and they just didn't believe in me. So I really didn't have much of a choice because I wanted to start doing more volunteer work. My current company wouldn't let me do it. So I really didn't have much of a choice but to start the company because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do the volunteer work I wanted to do. Right. And when you were knocking on those doors, so you've already mentioned there in Philly, and, and Philly, I think, is a different place than a lot of, you know, I come from the rural South, so, so it's a very different place from, say, my hometown. You mentioned, so you're in your 20s, which is young, which is, you know, it, that's, I think, a, a challenge anyway, as someone who also started my own business. When you're younger, sometimes it's harder to get people to assume that you know what you're doing, even when you know what you're doing, you know, that you know that you know what you're doing compound that with the fact that you were Black? Did you find that hard finding clients or did you find that internet was more of a kind of a great leveler? You know what? It's one of the things I loved about performance marketing. It was like, either you hire me or your competitor will, and you're going to find out that that was a fucking mistake, right? Like, <laughs> right. that's the way I looked at it, right? Because I can control that, right? I can control that if you didn't hire me, I'm going to go pitch your competitor. And then I'm going to be working off of anger, which is not a good thing for you because I'm not then looking at hours or margins. I'm just trying to win. Right. 
but I was lucky. Um, you know, one of the first people I started doing some work with, um, cause I went down to main street Maniunk, which is like, you know, where I live. I started knocking on doors of entrepreneurs and one of them ended up being uh, Peter Madden, who I got connected through, to through a friend. And I was like, well, he's right down the street. Let me go talk to him. And Peter connected me to my first three or four clients. And then everything else is kind of history from there. But it mm-hmm. was somebody being willing to trust me with their trusted relationships that opened the doors for me. And I think that when somebody comes to you and says, I know this guy, he's good, his work is good, here's what he's done for me, and he can show people the impact, I think that that vote of endorsement, along with my results, made it really easy for people to be like, okay, well, if I've been working with Peter and he trusts you and I can see your work, we should hire you. So that's how it kind of happened. And two of the things that you mentioned, which I think are really kind of important to the tax profession in particular, is you mentioned relationships and um, metrics. So I'm all about those things. So I think that, you know, relationships are key, especially when you're in a service-based business, because it's all kind of, as you said, you know, somebody who's going to put in a good word for you, right? So that's where networking and that kind of stuff comes into play. The other thing that's really important is you were talking about performance and metrics. And, you know, tax is a very numbers-driven business. And it's something that you can look at. Like if you're, if you are as a as a preparer struggling to get 1040s done or as a controversy person, you know, you can't handle an audit, those numbers will show. And I, and I found that fascinating. And also you, you wrote about that, that the metrics really kind of gave you the leg up because that's what people saw. So is that something that you've incorporated into the way that you run your business? Like you focus just on metrics or, or are there other pieces that you look at? Well, I think there are other pieces I look at. Like, so remember, like I started the business because I was, I wanted to volunteer. So it can't just be about the business metrics. It also has to be what's our impact on our community? What's our impact on our local community as well as our industry community? So it's more than just that. You know, how are we impacting the lives of our coworkers and their families? So, but all of that is still metrics to me mm-hmm. because without data, how do I hold myself accountable? So without me tracking how many hours I'm putting into volunteering or, um, or, or looking at the different hours that we're putting in or the money that we're putting into things that support families, then I can say a bunch of stuff. But when somebody says, you know, prove it, show me your budget, then it's like, well, uh, you know, so, you know, if someone were to say, hey, we'll prove it that you're a company that really cares about people's mental health. I'd go, OK, well, here's this app that we just purchased uh, and spent X number of dollars on for our team members, no questions asked. Um, you know, hey, we just turned our seventh floor into a playhouse for the parents who are just like at their wits end in the really, really cold winters of Philadelphia right now. And they might need January, February, and part of March to have somewhere to go. So I really try to back up what I say I believe with things that are provable um, mm-hmm. across the board. Right. And that's actually, you had written in your piece, you said, I might've had bosses who didn't quote like me. But my results in those early days were undeniable. So they kept me, supported me, et cetera. So when you talk about results-based businesses and metrics, I think that that is, you know, it's, it's less, it's kind of the difference between, you know, hiring someone and, and feeling like they did a good job and then hiring someone and looking at the numbers and saying they're performing, you know, sales are up or whatever it is that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do when you know how does the experience of again being younger, which I think is already it's funny we we look at people like um, you know uh, Zuckerberg and there was an interesting comment about how 
he maybe he was the way that he was because he was young and he wanted other people to think that everything that he did was purposeful because he was young so that you would trust him more quickly. So you have you have that. So you're 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 starting a business in your mid 20s in a city which again I do think is is a little different and and you were black and did you find that to be difficult once you started getting successful cuz you know you talk about metrics and you're doing well, right? But when you walk into let's say the union league and you're shaking someone's hand you're not whipping out your sales numbers. You're not showing them where you're ranking on, you know, the the fastest moving businesses list. How do you kind of overcome probably the the inherent implicit bias that we know a lot of people have? Like, how do you say I'm a really successful business person and without having those metrics? You don't. You know, <laughs> when I started Sear and it was just me, my business card said associate. It never said CEO, founder, none of that stuff. And I kept my cards saying that up until I think even today. I mean, not that I really use business cards, but I got them around here somewhere. And I'm pretty sure it just says associate um, because I didn't want people to know I was a CEO. Like I didn't want people to treat me any differently Mm -hmm. or think of me any differently because I'm one of many who steers the ship, right? And we all play our roles, but without each other, we wouldn't have this thing. So for me, I just, I've always avoided networking and things like that and just felt that the best way to network was to do a really good job for my clients and have them make referrals for me um, versus trying to be, and to this day, I'm very poorly networked. You know, I'm, I got a decent network just because of my, the size of the business and all that stuff and the visibility on the business. Mm-hmm. But like for me to go out to an event, that takes time away from me going and trying to get better at my craft and get results for clients. And for me, it was rarely worth it. It was awkward for me. So I just always kind of avoided them and kept my heads down and did, and did the best work that I could for the people who were paying me. And when you uh, talked a lot about early on about you know, charity being a, a kind of a driver and why you left your first job, I know that that's something that you're really um, still passionate about to this day. Do you focus your efforts on entrepreneurial type things? I know you work a lot with Covenant House. Do you how do you find the charities that speak to you? And do you use who you are today to, you know, influence that in a way other than volunteer hours and money? Like, do you speak at those things? Like, how do you, how do you impact those communities now? It's a great question. So I do speak at some of them, but not too many. Um, you know, I tend to be attracted to organizations that are just helping kids, you know, and depending on the spectrum, some kids, you know, once I was asked to speak at a group home, then I went and I spoke about entrepreneurship and all that stuff. And what I really realized is those kids didn't need that at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, it, they needed just stability and safety and security. So I don't usually talk too much to the youth that I speak with about entrepreneurship as much. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a little bit. I do. But I try not to spend too much on that because many times the, 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 the youth that I'm speaking with are coming from some pretty tough situations. And I don't want to be like, you know, you can run your own business. It's like, yeah, you might've been like sleeping on people's sofas for the last like year on and off. And I think what I should be telling you is that there's nothing wrong with getting a job, right? right Get yeah. something stable, start saving some money, like start building a little group of people that you know versus, and I think also today, to be honest with you, you know, every time I talk to a kid about entrepreneurship, it's like, I want to start a music label or a fashion brand. 
And it's like, okay, good luck with that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the truth, you know, working with inner city youth, it's like, oh, I want to start a music label or a fashion brand or, you know, something. And you're like, well, call me again when you're, when you're 28, right? Like call me when you're a little bit older and you realize that that's not going to be it. And that you probably need to find something that people are willing to pay you for and find a way to make your passion a side project. Right. Do you consider yourself a role model when you go out to places? Do, do you do you know that people look at you as a success story? They say that about me, but I see no value in thinking of myself as successful. It's like, okay, great. So what? And also, I think that nobody, I mean, all these success stories, but you look at Tony Shea, right? This guy sold Zappos to Amazon, like super successful, quote unquote, and he was so empty. Right. You know, right. you look at, I'm just finished the book, uh, Billion Dollar Loser about Adam Newman. You look at uh, the Theranos founder. You know, these people looked successful. And I think that 50 to probably 70% of the people who look successful are struggling somewhere. But nobody wants to talk about that. That's the real side of entrepreneurship, right? There's struggle that comes along with that. Oh, so for me, I've always kind of tried to be like, you know, you can call me whatever you want, you can call me successful if you want. But I don't see a lot of value. I think the way I stay, quote unquote, successful is by making sure that I am being a good partner to my spouse, that I'm being home for my kids, and that I don't let this business consume me because it could. Oh, um, sure. but, that, but that doesn't go into anyone's success equation. Like Nobody says like, hey, this year, Will hasn't traveled more than five days in a month without his family. Like you know, like That's not the metrics by which people want to introduce me by. But those are the success metrics that I hold myself accountable to. Not necessarily the, you know, the fact that the company is, you know, worth 30 or 40 million bucks, whatever people want to say. I mean, we talked about this in the profession quite a bit, actually, since you mentioned like quality of life is as, as important. One of the conversations that I had with Tony Nitty, who um, was one of my colleagues at Forbes, was that he talked about the fact that he used to keep his Skype on all the time and, and a lot of those kinds of things. And he realized that younger tax professionals saw that. And thought that that was what you were supposed to do. And so it actually struck him that like he needed to not be available so that the generations coming up understood that it was okay to not be available. He lives in Colorado, so he's been posting pictures of himself skiing, which is crazy because tax season's starting. And usually tax professionals are always like, you know, 100%, we're just working. But he kind of wants to be one of the people to show that that's different. Do you think that modeling that for you, like like saying to other entrepreneurs, look, I'm hanging out with my kids today, because I know you, you say some of that and you've been posting yep. some of that on social. Do you think that that sends a message that it's okay to take time for yourself? You know what? I'm not real big on telling people what they should do. Mm -hmm. I just speak my truth. Right. So that's the life that I want to live. If that's inspirational to you, awesome. If that makes you feel like, yo, you know what? If he can do it, I can do it. Awesome. If you're like, I hate that guy. Awesome. Like, <laughs> I don't care because I'm just putting out what is true to me. And then you can take from that whatever you will, right? Because I'm not trying to craft a narrative so much as like, I like sharing what I'm up to, right? And what mm -hmm. I believe in. And I like using my platform for that, right? So um, yeah, I don't really think too much about trying to give people permission so much as I'm like, this life is possible as an entrepreneur, right? And I don't know if we're hearing enough of that. So I feel like it's incumbent on me to some extent 
to show a side of entrepreneurship that probably is not talked about very frequently. Right. And I know that you you don't have anything to prove to people because I have known you a while. I know that that's how you live your life. Like you do it for you and not for other people. But you do get that like people look at you as a success story, right? I mean, like you've, you've shrugged it off, but you get that people look at you and say, hey, here's this guy who in his 20s started a company that's really successful and has been on all these lists and this is something that's possible, especially when we put it in the uh, kind of context of minority communities. Like they look and see that, you know, you didn't, because you mentioned earlier record labels and fashion houses, right? So Mm -hmm. you didn't do this by being Jay-Z and and starting a a company or, or, you know, LL Cool J starting um, a, a record label and getting really famous through arts. I mean, which I do think in some ways is, it's, it's, I think a little, it's a little flashier and it's something that people look up to and it's easier to kind of look at this person, look at these five people. In the tech world, we don't see a lot of Will Reynolds, right? We see the Mark Zuckerbergs, we see the Tim Cooks, we see a lot of white guys. So you, you are, I mean, whether you want to be or not, you, you are somebody that people look at and say he's successful and he's also not like what we look at in terms of success stories in the tech world. I get that. You know, I do. I I definitely um, understand that uh, perspective. It's funny about 10 years ago, after years of just fighting people calling me successful or whatever they wanted to call me, um, inspirational, whatever, I finally changed my Twitter bio to include the phrase, and I'll quote Eminem, I am whatever you say I am. (laughs) Because I was fighting it so much because it makes me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But why? Why is that? Because you don't know me, right? Like, But people see your work, right? So when you talk about metrics and you talk like people can see whether or not they think you're successful, uh, you know, personally, again, kind of to your point about people don't know what goes on behind the scenes, but whether they've seen who you are as a person or not, they've seen what you've done and that's success. Uh, To them. It is not successful to me if I left a wake of kids who don't know my name, stuff that I've missed, a partner who's like, man, you know, you're just going for 30 or 60 days at a time or you're never here. Like that would not be successful for me. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm not spending time with my mom or taking my mom on some of the trips when I could, you know, it's not as easy now. That wouldn't be successful for me. But so that's why, right? Because to me, my definition of success is not entirely driven by the external metrics by which someone would say, oh, that person is successful. Sure. Right? Like, like you could not pay me to be Mark Zuckerberg. You could not pay me. I think that guy's disgusting. <laughs> right? Like, like, I think he's disgusting. I think that he has an opportunity to make real change and he kicks and he doesn't. And he owns all the shares. Like he owns all the voting, he owns enough voting shares to really make that company into something that could be societally great, and he never takes a stand. So it's like externally, is Mark Zuckerberg more successful than me? Quote unquote, yeah. But like, you could not pay me for that level of success. Mm-hmm. Again, kind of going circling back that that, but that whole that conversation you you don't see in the tech space as much as you do in some other contexts, and you're more quiet about it. Is True. that purposeful? I mean, and and I understand again business, and I I get that there's a lot of factors, but you don't 
drive that conversation because you're, as you said, you're focusing on your craft. Do you think at some point that you will like start having those conversations or no? No, I always tell people the only time I'm really comfortable talking about entrepreneurship, if we're going to talk about failure, Mm -hmm. because I'm very open about failure. And I think very few people are, and I think more entrepreneurs need to hear that. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm open to. But if you want me to come in rah, rah, talk about you can do it too. You know, go get somebody else for that. There's a thousand people barely holding on by a string who who will internally know that they are failing and that their business is failing. But externally, they'll go out and give you your speech to tell you that, you know, you can do it too when they know it's a complete farce. So yeah, I, I just can't do it. It's just not authentic to who I am to, to try to rile people up about something that I know. I mean, the data, again, goes back to the data. How many small businesses fail, you know, within their first five years or one year or whatever. Like the average business doesn't make it, but like mm-hmm. nobody wants to hear that when they're like, speak to these entrepreneurs. Well, it's like, okay. Um, so I try to avoid it for the most part, unless we're going to talk about real stuff. And then I'm right. open to it. Sure. And one of the things when you talk about businesses failing, when Eric and I were discussing on Twitter, actually, after the podcast had aired, one of the things that was really interesting to me is uh, he was looking at the fact that when We look at businesses that are struggling in this country, especially when we look at minority businesses, that we are, as a country, willing to throw money towards supporting the businesses, but not owning the businesses. And he thought that that is a a crucial piece, that there aren't as many minority-owned businesses, even when you have successful uh, minorities in tech or whatever, but they're not always owned businesses. And this was something that was important to him. You know, do you, when you go out and talk to other companies, I know you're not asking, you know, you've been associate on your business card for a while, but do you, do you make a point of trying to collaborate with other minority owned businesses or is it just metrics? No, it's that for me, it's, it's, it's just metrics. Like I, you know, I'm not even a minority certified business and I'm the hundred percent owner of the company. Like even when I was in college, you know, it's like, oh, there's an opportunity to join the black student union or join this or that. And I was like, it just, for me personally, mm-hmm. I just never kind of separated myself out that way. Right. And, you know, to the guy that you, it was on your podcast before, what I would tell him is like, then like get really good, build a really big business, and then you can have the impact that you want in the world. It's mm-hmm. really hard to build a really big business. Sure. Right. That sloughing off, you know, and doing 30, 40, 50, $100 million in revenue. But like, if you want to change it, like you might have to get, build something that that's big. You're going to find out that that's really freaking hard. Cause like you, we can't wait for Mark Zuckerberg to figure it out. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that guy ain't doing nothing for anybody. But for me personally, no, I've never really sought out like, Hey, I specifically want to collaborate with, you know, any group, you know, Oh, more women groups or more, uh, black and brown groups. Um, even when the mayor asked me to do something um, for Tech Week, oh no, it wasn't Tech Week. It was, uh, it was North by Northwest, I think, which is what Philly was doing around like uh, black and brown folks in the city around like the tech space and the tech world. The one thing I was thinking is like, I was like, don't we have a pretty big Vietnamese population? Like, are they included in the black and brown thing? Like, because I know a lot of people that are Vietnamese who've come over here and, and they're struggling and they're doing yada, yada, yada. Are they left out? Like, you know, and then for me, as we live in a society that's more and more mixed, it's like, you know, I got one kid that's like chocolate Brown and one kid that is like you, most people would not know that kid was 25% black. So, 
you know, it's like, does he get to come or is he going to be looked at like an outsider because he looks white? And, you know, people want to, oh, well, uh, and you're like, but no, man, like black and brown, like where's the line get drawn in a world where we're constantly mixing people up? Like, where does the line get drawn? You know, and I just never wanted to be somebody that's about dividing people into groups. I always just like to say, hey, I'm going to be here. Like when I work with like groups like Coded by Kids, it's like, or the Covenant House, I know I'm working with probably 80, 90% black youth, Mm -hmm. but if they approached me on some black stuff, like, oh, this is a black only organization or a black and brown only organization, then I probably would be like, nah, I'm not so sure I'm going to be a part of that. But I have zero problem being a part of an organization that's 100% black students if they're saying, but we're open to all, right? It just so happens that in the neighborhoods that we're in and whatnot, that all the students who showed up for this event are black. I'm like, that's totally awesome. Mm-hmm. But I, I just don't like the idea of separating. So that's kind of my take on that. Cool. And just kind of in tandem with that, one of the things that um, when Eric and I were talking about, again, you know, representation, we actually specifically were talking about LeBron because Eric used to play uh, basketball. And we were talking about LeBron and he was saying like he wondered if LeBron hired uh, Black attorneys, Black accountants, you know, did did he make a point of going out and, and seeking out those people, not for business, but for like fiduciaries and that kind of thing? When you build your team, and I'm talking about like your workplace, because I know your workplace is diverse. Um, when you build your team, do you keep that in mind? Or again, does it go back to kind of what you were saying before is, is it's metrics? No, it's well, when it comes to building the team, it's more about heart. You know, and my team's not overly diverse. Like I have had a hard time finding black talent just like every other company. You have a lot of women. Uh, a lot of women. A lot of women. Women in tech is not something you're used to seeing a lot of, I think. No. Yeah. So, you know, that's, uh, but that's also just happened. You know, I I was also one of those black kids. Like I didn't want anybody thinking I was somewhere, you know, I had people thinking I was on scholarship for sports when I was just smart. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, so I've always carried this chip on my shoulder to be like, I don't want to do that to any other black people where it's like, oh, well, Will's black. So he's probably like trying to build a more diverse company. It's like, you know, sometimes you allow other people to look at you like, oh, well, would that person be here if we weren't on this like D&I kick? And like, I would never want anybody in my company, woman, somebody that has a physical disability or anything, a handicap, like anything, I would never want them to be like, oh, well, you know, Will's trying to do X or Y. So is that a part of the reason why I'm here? I would rather than be here and for, for, you know, without that potentially hanging over them. Because I had people asking me, you know, what sport do you play? I was like, F off, man. Like, I, I'm smart. Like, why do you assume that? And it's like, well, I know the college is giving out a lot of scholarships. And it's like, I, I don't know. I just hated that conversation. Mm-hmm. But sorry, no, I'm off, I'm off of where, what the question you were asking about. Oh, about like um, what LeBron did with different people around the team. That's never really come into my calculus. It's really funny. I just got burned. It's funny. I just got burned twice by making, hiring somebody or putting them on my team or trying to purchase something from somebody because they were Black. Mm-hmm. I just got burned twice in like the last couple months. And I'm like, yep, like there it goes. Like I overextended myself to kind of be like, hey, I should do more. I did. And my first two instances out of the gate didn't, actually my first two didn't pan out the way that I hoped. So now I'm just doing some soul searching on like, got to find my own way to continue to support, but to also like, I don't know, maybe do a better job of due diligence so that I don't just kind of lead in with my heart on some of that stuff. And wanting to be a part of the solution, but then actually have it be a nightmare with the way it turns out. Right. And when we talk about like hiring and building the company and stuff, I know you mentioned early on that this was never 
your vision. Like you always, you didn't expect to be, I think you said hiring 230 by the end of the year. You know, what do you think of the future in terms of like when you, when you think about legacy, when you think about what you want to be known for, when you think about what you want to accomplish, like what's left? Cause you're still pretty young. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think a lot about that because it doesn't move my company forward today. My legacy will be whatever people want to say it is, just like my Twitter handle says, right? Mm -hmm. The only thing that I have thought about is, you know, I think that there's a way for a business to be a fast growth business and a really good business at the same time. Um, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. And I, what I, the only thing that I hope is that, you know, when people get to work in this company that, that we've built called Seer and that they move on, I hope that they take some of the good stuff that we do that a lot of other companies don't do and try to implement that in, in their places. So that's the only thing that I really hope for. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you out on one thing because I, I suspect that you do care a little bit about what your kids think of you because I know you as a dad. What do you want them to think about your legacy? Like, do you want them, like, do you want, like, how do you want them to look at you as, and I know you've made a point of saying you, you don't want to not be there. Like, you want to be the dad that's there. Like, do you, it's funny to me when I hear my kids talk about what I do, right? So do you <laughs> think, do, do you think that they, like, do you want them to be like, yeah, my, my dad's been on the news or my dad is in books and magazines or whatever. Like, do you? Do you talk to your kids? About, I mean, they're still young, but do they know that you're not the same as the people down the block? And I don't mean that in a in a like a derogatory way to no, the I know exactly down the block. I'm just no, saying, no, like no, no, no. you you know that you are you're you're looked at different, even though you may not want to be. You're looked at differently, especially in Philadelphia, True. than than other than other folks. Do your kids? Do you want them to know that? No, I mean, my kids already have such a privileged life that the the less they know about us situation, our financial situation, what their dad does and how I'm regarded in the industry, the less they know about that, the better. Is there anybody that like you would want, again, and I know that success to you is maybe different the way a lot of people talk about it. Is there anybody that you would want to say like, will made a difference in this way? Like when you think about how you want to be known, like you're talking about reading books. If someone was to write a book about you, what would you want the takeaway to be? And again, I know on some level you're saying you don't care, but there has to be something that you want people to think. Like, I know you feel passionately about the culture in your company. Do you want people to think, you know, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about how to be a good person. Like, what kinds of things would you want people to take away from working in your company or working with you? You know, just that, like, we have a responsibility to people outside of our, like, the only well, let me answer the first one is, you know, we have a responsibility to the neighborhoods in which we, we live mm -hmm. and the people and our, and our neighbors. You know, it's crazy. Yesterday, I saw a woman struggling. She had this big stroller, um, you know, one of those like, but it was more like a wagon style stroller. So it has four wheels, big wheels. But man, there was just some places, some spots that were like super icy, both sides. She couldn't get this really wide stroller down, you know, down the, uh, the street. Mm -hmm. And I like came over and I'm obviously I'm masked up and I'm like, yo, can I like help you? Like, and she's like, no, I got it. I'm like, no, you don't. I'm like, here, let me just pick it up and help you out. So then I ended up carrying her, her son in her stroller for a couple, like, you know, like a block and a half to get her over this, these ice patches and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you're Will Reynolds, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, I know you. And I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> and she's like, I'm one of your clients. I used to be one of your clients. And, you know, she's all like masked up. So you can't see anybody. You don't know who they are. 
And it's like, when you ask about like that, like, that's what I want people to know about me is like, you know, I'm just trying to put good in the world, period, you know, mm-hmm. as I define good. And that's it. And that I'm not allowing this business, did that delay me 10 minutes and starting working on my big business? Yeah. But it's like, that's not the person I want to be. Like, I want somebody to do that for my wife. Mm-hmm. If she's ever struggling with the kids, I want somebody to do that for my mom or dad. If they ever needed somebody to shovel their driveway or whatever. So it's like, you know, that, that kind of stuff matters to me as an example to lead for my team. So mm-hmm. then they know that it's not like I'm preaching that stuff, but I'm not doing it. And that that's what I hope that they all do too. When they see something in the world that they could be a part of helping and that's it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate uh, your time today. And, and if people wanted to find you or your company on social and you wanted to be found, where could they find you? It's, uh, I think the best place to find me is on Twitter. It's uh, Will Reynolds with one L is my Twitter handle. Um, that's usually the best place to, to, to find me. And the company that work at is Sear Interactive. And we have people all over the country now. Uh, and we have offices in Philly and San Diego. So uh, that's how you can find me as well. Just Google Sear Interactive or go to searinteractive.com. Awesome. Thanks, Will. Thank you for having me. It was awesome. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.